to all you Tudor time travellers out there and welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. It's Sarah here, the Tudor Travel Guide, and it's my pleasure again to be your guide as we go exploring a couple of fascinating Tudor locations. Very different locations today, one in Cambridge and one of the the architectural wonders of the city, in my humble opinion, and the second, a palatial house in Kent. Now, as I sit here today, there is snow outside my window and the days of summer and travelling and doing my Tudor road trips and seeing places seems quite some some way away. However, of course, this is a great time to make plans. So I hope the guests we have today will be able to inspire you about what you need to put down on your travel itinerary for this summer. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. And our first guests today are talking to us about a beautiful and substantial property in Kent, and that's Knoll. Knoll is run by the National Trust, and in this chat, I'm going to be talking to Natalie Cohen and Francis Parton, who are the lead, the architectural, the archaeological, pardon me, archaeological project that's been going on at Knoll, and also um, Francis is the head curator there. So without further ado, let's get talking. So I'd like to welcome Natalie and Francis from Knoll to the show. Welcome to you both, ladies. Hi. Hello. Very, very happy to have you here today. Knoll is such a beautiful property and I'm looking forward to learning more about it. And I know our listeners will feel exactly the same. But just maybe so we can um, get to know you a little bit more, what are your particular roles in association with with Noel? Right well um, I'm the curator which means I'm responsible for um, the presentation really as well as the state of preservation of the contents and the interiors and the fabric of the building. And uh, I'm the archaeologist for uh, the region for the for the National Trust so I cover Noel as a part of a wider portfolio uh, with all the other properties in, in Kent and East Sussex. And I've been very involved while the uh, major conservation project here at Knoll has been underway. And we're going to definitely be talking about that project in a little while. So um, we've, got, we've got all bases covered today. I can feel it. So um, <laughs> perhaps um, we could just kick off by giving everybody out there a little bit of context about the history of the house. You know, how how did it come into being? And, and what can you tell us about the early history of Knoll? Uh, so we know that there is a, a, a manor here at Knoll during the medieval period. Um, and what we, we know is that that uh, is acquired by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Bourchet, in the mid-15th century. And it originally appears to be acquired by him as a, as a private residence and later passes into the, the sort of wider ownership of the Archbishops of Canterbury. Um, that lasts until the 1530s when uh, Henry VIII uh, 
uh, intimates that he would quite like it. Uh, <laughs> it becomes a royal palace. Um, and then in the early 17th century, it uh, passes into the ownership of the Sackville family. Henry VIII had a wonderful way, didn't he, of hinting very heavily when he liked a property. And invariably, he did rather, yes. <laughs> and invariably it became his, um, which is understandable, I guess. That, so, so, OK, so we, from, from, we have a house on the site from the sort of uh, early, middle, medieval period. Onwards. From at least the 15th century onwards, although there are documentary records to a, a manor of Knoll going back into the 13th century. And, and just if I could, and you may not know the answer to this, but if I could just dig a little bit deeper, Archbishop Bouchier, how was it? It was it was privately owned by him, and he bequeathed it to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. Is that right? That's what we believe. Yes, I mean, he seems to have acquired it as a as a residence, um, which he used, um, mm. and then as it as he gets older and as he. Um, sort of passes into his retirement period. We know he was using it more and more, and then it becomes part of the, the ownership after his death. Yep. I see. I think he's probably aware of quite how difficult the politics are during that period, and he's confident, you know, that I think he wants to maintain his confidence by keeping something personal and private in case anything does go wrong. And then it's not until uh, four, uh, 1480, so 24 years after he's purchased it, that he then grants it to the church for the use of his successors. Mm. So it's, he, it is actually a private residence for him much longer than it is belonging to the church. I see. And and by the difficult period, of course, you're referring to the Wars of the Roses and the changing fortunes of the Lancastrians and the Yorkists. Absolutely. <laughs> and so he was doing a bit of a nifty fo- footwork there, I guess, and trying to, yes. keep, trying to keep his um, nose clean. Um, yes. So um, now Noel is really interesting. I find it really interesting. I, I visited quite recently and, and I do think of it as a Tudor house. But when you come upon it in that beautiful parkland, it, it doesn't have that, you know, typical Tudor appearance. And having read a little bit about it, it's had a very interesting history, hasn't it, in the way that the house has developed and perhaps and this may tie into the project that you've been working on I think Natalie the archaeological project and perhaps you ladies could um, describe a little bit about the project and and what you learned from that and how the house did develop. So the the project is is uh, the largest conservation project in the National Trust and what that means for the archaeology mm-hmm. is that we've had the opportunity to Uh, look a lot more uh, at the fabric of the building than we ever have had in the past. So all of the the works undertaken to improve uh, the conservation aspects of the building means that we've done a lot of opening up of areas over the last uh, six or seven years. Um, And it's really built on the work um, leading up to that through the conservation management plan by Oxford Archaeology, which looked at the the phasing and the development of the building and work by two PhD students, uh, Alden Gregory and Ed Town, which examined the documentary backgrounds to both the medieval ownership and the Sackville ownership of the complex. So we've essentially been able to um, test those theories um, over the last six or seven years by examining parts of the building that have been revealed under the floorboards and behind the panelling. And could I just interrupt a moment and ask, um, obviously you said that it was the, the Trust's largest archaeological project. Why Why was, if you like, so much, why, why was Noel the focus of that kind of level of investigation? Was there a 
Was there a, a question that needed to be answered? Um, the real reason we undertook this project, the motivation for it, was just simply because the collections and the interiors of the house were really suffering. Um, the fabric of the house hadn't received the maintenance it needed for a long, long time. So wow. the building was actually weathertight, watertight. There were enormous um, fluctuations in relative humidity in the showrooms. And so the collections themselves were really suffering. So the focus of the project really has been to get... Um, get the collections into a better state and improve the conservation conditions within the showrooms. But in order to do that, we've had to obviously address the wider structural issues of the house. So as Nat says, it's been this amazing opportunity for us to take off panelling, lift up floorboards so that we can do things like put in new services, put in fireproofing, um, put in a, a conservation heating management plan. New insulation. Um, new insulation, exactly. So it's been new this lighting. opportunity to do that that has enabled us to explore the structure of the house in a way that we haven't ever been able to do before. That, that's so exciting, isn't it? The chance to lift those floorboards and get behind panelling. I bet you really wondered what you were going to find. <laughs> it, it has been hugely exciting. So can you tell us some of the highlights then, ladies? What, you know, yeah, some of the highlights, some of the things you've found and, and what that, what you've learned there as a, as a result of what you've found. So um, the, the approach to the archaeological works has been twofold, essentially. We've been working with Museum of London Archaeology, uh, the buildings archaeology team from, from that company to examine the structure of the building. So they've been recording all of those phases of development that we've been talking about. So we now know, for example, that uh, the uh, roof of the eastern and southern range of the building has uh, about 20 different phases of construction represented, everything from late medieval roofs all the way through to the 20th century, where wow. people have add and change or redesign things. We've seen uh, medieval timber frame doors that are now hidden underneath uh, later panelling. So... Uh, routeways through the medieval building from the time of the archbishops, which are now covered up or no longer uh, in use because there are different uh, ways of getting into all of these spaces, mm -hmm. staircases that have been inserted, new floors, room partitions that no longer exist, all sorts of fascinating details about the building, moving fireplaces as well. Fireplaces move quite often around. Did they? Um, <laughs> really? They do, yes. Uh, the second... Um, Sort of, sort of prong to our archaeological work has been undertaken by the Knoll volunteer team who've been doing all of the retrieving of finds from under the floorboards and behind the panelling. Oh, that uh, sounds such a terribly boring job. Not. Uh, it's been awful. <laughs> We've had a terrible, terrible time. It's been really, really tough. Um, and that, that's been really interesting, actually, because what we have discovered is mainly artefacts that date from the 17th century onwards. We have no artefacts that date, as far as I'm aware, to the medieval period. So it does appear that that 17th century phase of restoration under the ownership of Thomas Sackville was very extensive. Um, you know, a lot of floors being replaced, a lot of ceiling work, a lot of new configurations to rooms, and a lot of clearing out of materials. So most of the artefacts that we've found uh, date to the post-medieval period or later Victorian and modern. And we found, you know, really incredible things like a message in a bottle from 1906. Oh. Um, we found 17th century letters um, sort of relating to movement of materials between uh, Copt Hall and other houses owned by the, the, the family at the time. Uh, it, it's been an incredible project as far as, as the archaeological works go. 
That sounds fascinating. I just got to ask you, I know it's from 1906 and therefore out with the period that we're focusing on, but what was the message in the bottle? <laughs> uh, so the message was from uh, Sid Doggett, who was uh, working here at Nold Estate from 1898 until 1960. Uh, and he left us a message to say that in 1906, he was repairing the radiators and the hot water services <laughs> uh, in the East Attics. Oh, wonderful. What a shame the medieval folk and Tudor folk didn't do the same. But there you are. Never mind. <laughs> what, what, what? Um, so can you I know I know um, describing the layout and the use of a, a such a complex building is difficult but can you give us any kind of top level flavor of of what the Tudor house looked like and including you know what some of the principal chambers were what do we know or not know about that well we certainly know that um, some of the spaces that we we still use today were, uh, in place um, during the, the, the ownership of the archbishop. So the Great Hall, uh, the old kitchen, uh, the Brown Gallery is a is an archiepiscopal uh, insertion. The Leicester Gallery, I think, as well, is also a, an, an early uh, sort of thoroughfare through the building. So we can we can identify some of those spaces that would have been familiar to the archbishops. And as I mentioned. Um, we can now see where we have routeways through those spaces. So some of the earlier doors, which give us an indication of which rooms were maybe being used as 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 suites of rooms, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, coming off the the longer galleries. Of course, the other thing to remember is that um, a lot of Knoll is uh, still in occupation by the Sackville. So there are whole suites of rooms within uh, the, the family uh, apartments that would also have been familiar to the um, to the archbishops and, and would have continued in use through the Tudor period. But those haven't been part of our, our project this time. So we haven't been looking at uh, those in as much detail. And so um, what happens with the project from here? Are you coming to the end of that project now? Yes, um, the project will come to an end in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we open reopen to the public in our entirety on the 2nd of March, which is very, very exciting because it is the first time that the complete run of showrooms has been open to the public for the last five years, and they will notice a huge change. Um, the lighting is vastly improved, the collections are improved, uh, and we have done our best to go back to a more authentic historic hang. Um, the house really has regained its its sparkle and it, its vibrancy. It's feeling absolutely fantastic. Well, if, yeah, that's, that's... if that's not a reason to pack your bags and get down to Kent straight away, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> There'll also be the opportunity to visit uh, spaces that haven't been open to the public previously. So in addition to new spaces that we've opened throughout the project, including uh, the conservation studio in the barn, uh, the Hayloft, Ed- Hayloft Education Centre and the Outer Wicket Tower, you'll also be able to visit some of the attic spaces um, from uh, March this year. Yes, which offer a completely different side to the house from the showrooms and um, have never been open to the public before. So that is a very, very exciting opportunity. So what will people notice in the attic rooms? Well, they're from a later period, are they? They're from post-Tudor? Essentially, yes. Um, but they um, the principal one is the retainers gallery which was conceived as a very high status space in the early 17th century but quite quickly fell out of use and has been used ever since since for storage really but it was looking really quite dilapidated Mm -hmm. but we just feel it's very very important for our visitors to understand that not all of Knoll looks like the showrooms (laughs) Knoll is enormous it is one of the biggest country houses in England and the showrooms have a very very long 
history as display spaces. Um, Knoll has been visited for at least 400 years, whereas places like the attics have had a different purpose and therefore have a very different feel. And actually much more of Knoll looks like the attics than the showrooms. So we are just very, very pleased now to be able to show the public um, a, a range of really different spaces and the different kind of feelings and atmospheres which we have here at Knoll. That's wonderful. One of the most interesting things um, that again came out of some of the archaeological work on the project was recording the graffiti um, across the property, so in the showrooms as well actually, but in the attic spaces is really where you see uh, the best evidence for it, because as Francis said, you are moving through spaces that have gone out of use, they're being used for storage, um, so people are visiting them in terms of using them for maintenance, um, and you will be able to go and see uh, the which uh, the uh, the graffiti that's been left by workmen and uh, you know all sorts of people who've been visiting uh, mm. those attic spaces. The other thing as well that's uh, uh, surviving in the attic is a whole series of ritual protection marks um, within the upper king's room, which is a very exciting discovery again dating from the early seventeenth century. That sounds really, really interesting. And um, I know I visited just as you were closing at the end of last year. So I definitely need to make a date to come back now in the spring. Um, I do have a bit of a, a kind of, I think I mentioned this at the, at the, the, the top of the programme, and that was about the kind of the external appearance of Knoll. It's, it doesn't look like your typical Tudor house. Was it ever a red-bricked house is is the facade you see on it literally that a later facade with a with a kind of a red brick house beneath it or was it always built in that kind of stone uh, the, no there's the only red brick elements to Knoll are the the uh, early 17th century chimney stacks um that what is buried beneath the uh, the masonry that you see at the front of the building which is probably also medieval it's most likely that that is also part of the archbishop's palace uh, is more bits of medieval buildings so Knoll has always been uh, constructed of ragstone constructed around its courtyards and it's essentially evolved uh, and grown um, with that same uh, fabric type being used mm -hmm. the 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 later elements um the 17th century external elements largely consist of uh, the gabling that you can see with the with the sackville leopard okay and probably quite a lot of refenestration as well in places but i mean the the as we said earlier the the the, the project has focused on specific areas of the property mm -hmm. and, and it is such a huge place that there is there's actually an enormous amount more work to do to understand the sort of full sequence of development wow and and you mentioned earlier that at some point Noel caught the eye of king henry the eighth who took the palace over um in what when when was that was that the mid 1540s or when was that so it's 15 uh, 37 to 38 that he uh, that he actually takes it over we know he had visited um earlier and he's obviously been he's obviously aware uh of the uh the potential and he didn't just uh, intimate that he would like noel he also uh, took on otford which is nearby mm. Mm. And, and and why do you think he wanted Noel? Obviously, the size sounds like one of the reasons, but it's in particularly beautiful parkland, isn't it? And I wonder whether that greatly appealed to Henry. I, I think that's exactly it. We have um, a contemporary source which says that um, Henry admires the, the fresh air because of Noel's elevated position. And I also think the hunting park here has always been 
very very attractive so yes I think um as acquisitive as, as he was um, he was very very attracted by the fact that we are close to London you know we're, it's a yeah. convenient spot but also the parkland and the surroundings at Knoll really are, are very much part of what must have attracted him. Mm. And, and do we know anything more of the events or the history that, that took place during Henry's sort of period of ownership? Um, well we know that um Henry is, um, he actually leaves his daughter here, Princess Mary, obviously the future Queen Mary, um, at Knoll for six months during his um, efforts to divorce Catherine of Aragon, which we think is also quite interesting. Mm. Um, But uh, we don't actually have much more in-depth about what he himself is doing here. We know he visited in 1541 and possibly 1542 as well, and he was making improvements to the, the garden and the park. So again, that emphasis on... Uh, the outdoor leisure activi- uh, opportunities mm. presented by Knoll Park um, seem to be coming through quite clearly. Mm. I wonder why he chose Knoll for Mary for that period of residence. No clues there at all? I think, again, probably just convenient location and perhaps a space where he's not spending too much time himself, mm. um, maybe also with Otford nearby. Um, we know that, that he's interested in having the two so that in, in a way he has more more sense for his, more space for his household. So uh, I should think probably convenience more than anything else. It's, yes. it's still in the archbishop's ownership at that point in time as well. So it, it, again, as a place to leave an important uh, member of your family, mm-hmm. leaving leaving your child with the Archbishop of Canterbury, I guess, is a <laughs> yes. you know, responsible guardian. <laughs> yes, I guess that's one way of looking at it, isn't it? <laughs> Um, and and this, has there any um, has there any been any artifacts, particular artifacts that have been left behind from its the Tudor period? Uh, none that we have recovered through archaeological uh, works. There are Tudor items within the collections, mm-hmm. um, which we can speak a little bit more to. That would be but, great. Um, yes, most of um, the collections were taken out in the Civil War. So the collections that we have now, actually, the majority of them came into the house later in several different ways. Um, so most of what would have been here at that point has sadly been dispersed and, and gone. Mm. Another casualty of the Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> how sad, how tragic. Yes. Um, but you do have some um, really interesting um, andirons, don't you? In, yes, we in do. In the Great Hall there. We do. We have um, a pair of 16th century wrought iron and steel andirons, a pair, obviously. So one has the arms of Henry, Henry VIII, and the other has the arms of Anne Boleyn's family, which are very, very interesting. And they have a figure on top, one representing Adam and one representing Eve, which is rather lovely. They are in the Great Hall. Um, they were brought to Knoll from Hever Castle in the early 19th century, um, mm. probably made by the royal locksmith, which we think is very, very interesting, Henry Romain. Mm. And um, they have been in the Great Hall for a long, long time. The very first guidebook to Knoll by John Bridgman, published in 1817, describes them in the Great Hall at that point. And as soon as our photographic record here begins, um, they are there in situ and they have been there ever since. So like lots of our collections here, we have a very, very long history of particular pieces being on display in particular areas. Mm. And the Great Hall always has been such a kind of important part of Knoll. The fact that they probably were bought specifically for that space and have been on display in that space ever since does make them a very special part of our collection. 
Yes, of course. And any artefact that's associated with the Berlins gathers a lot of lot of interest. Of course, yes, they are. <laughs> they are they are favourites with with a lot of our visitors. I bet they are. And and I was curious though. You said you thought they'd been made by the king's locksmith. Is there a clue to that as to why you think that's the case? I think it probably is just the quality of them. Like a lot of the collection here at Knoll, what we have is a very, very high quality. Um, again, it is slightly later, but we know that a lot of the 17th century royal crafts people are doing work here at Knoll. So um, I'm, as far as I know, it is simply to do with the quality of what we have here. Thank you. And I suppose before we go, therefore, it would be useful to wrap up by maybe I'd like to ask you, maybe what are you what's your favourite part of Knoll? If you were visiting or one of your friends was visiting, what would you recommend that they definitely go and see? I would like to start by saying that the public should certainly come to see our attic spaces. The atmosphere up in those spaces is absolutely extraordinary and like nothing that you will encounter anywhere else it is absolutely fabulous it's hard to describe you know come and see it for yourself wow. i would definitely add if you haven't had the chance to go to the uh the outer wicket tower yet that that also is a wonderful space um to visit again quite a different part of knoll um we know that there were there were much later occupants living in that space including eddie sackville west in the 20th century uh, so you can see uh, the spaces that have been set out as as he would have known them. And you can also climb all the way to the roof and look out over the property. So it's a, a really wonderful view um, from the top there. Mm. And it is really stunning parkland. That's always something that stays with me when I think of Noel. So thank you, ladies. That has been a fascinating journey through the history of Noel and what you've been doing with the project there. And it really does sound interesting. And my feet are itching to <laughs> jump in the car and get down and see these one. The, the attics sound amazing. So thanks very much for sharing all that with us. Just one final thing. You are open from when until when? We open on the 2nd of March. That's great. And you're through open then right the way through the summer season. It will be to um, November, I'd have thought. With the house closed on Mondays. OK, well, thank you for that. And again, thanks for sharing all your knowledge today with us. Much appreciated. So that was Natalie Cohen and Francis Parton talking to us about the majestic property of Knoll in Kent. And Kent is possibly one of my favourite counties to visit when going in search of Tudor properties. There are so many amazing places to see in quite a small space. And so not far from Knoll, you have the ruins of Otford. Not far, you have Hever Castle, Penshurst Place, some Sissinghurst Gardens. There is so much to see. It's certainly one of these places that you can book in for a very long weekend and just revel in your Tudor history. So before we get on to our next part of the programme, we're just going to take a brief break for a musical interlude. And this piece of music is by somebody called John Beddingham, who apparently died circa 1460. So it's a very early piece of music. And this is the kind of music that would have been perhaps played at court around the period of the Wars of the Roses. And I understand it is called So Is Omprented. Thank you. 
That was so beautiful, wasn't it? I do like my early medieval renaissance music. Anyway, let's move on to the next part of the show. And this is the part of the show where I have chance to talk to a fellow blogger or Tudor enthusiast about one of their favourite Tudor locations. And today I'm going to be talking to Heather Tesco. Now, Heather runs English Renaissance podcast and is responsible, of course, for the fact that this radio station exists at all. So I'm a little bit in awe of her and I'm looking forward to speaking to Heather today and finding out where her top Tudor spot is. So without further ado, let me introduce her. So hello, Heather. Welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Uh, It is. It is. And I'm really curious about today's location and your favourite Tudor spot. But before we dive into this, for those people who don't know you, perhaps you just want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your Tudor presence online. Okay, well, um, I started the, and I'm, I have to apologize, I'm American, so I say Renaissance instead of Renaissance. So <laughs> no worries. I, I started the Renaissance English History Podcast in 2009. It's actually the longest independent, conti- longest continuously running independent history podcast that's wow. out there. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I had some long hiatuses in there, but I always seem to come back. So that was pointed out to me by a guy who runs the history podcast Reddit. And I didn't even know. And he told me that. And I said, well, that's fun. Um, so I started that in 2009. And the the whole thing about Tudor England, I was introduced to Tudor England through the music when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And we sang William Byrd's Ave Verum Corpus. And I will never forget like my, my choir director telling us this story about how William Byrd was a Catholic and he lived under Elizabeth. And of course we were high schoolers. I was like 16. And so I didn't, he didn't go into detail on all of that, but I remember thinking, you know, this, it really appealed to the, the inner angst of a teenager, you know, who didn't think anybody in the world understood them. And, and here was this composer who was able to, who, you know, wasn't understood and had to hide their true beliefs and couldn't let their true self out and the music. And when you listen to that Ave Verum Corpus, which is such a famous piece that it sounds like the, the tension and, and, you know, and the music itself and Ave Verum Corpus would be like that. But I just picked up this, this tension and there was just something about that that just spoke to me. And then in 2000, I moved to London basically for the music. And I, I went all over, um, I had a young person's rail card and it was right after university. And I would just go around to all of these places based on when I could go to even song services. So I was constantly just taking the train to random places and, and going to the Evensong services there. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I spent a lot of time in random cathedrals throughout England. And that was how I would, would tour around was, you know, going to Evensong services. But one of my favorite places to go was, was King's College Chapel. And, um, and it's, it's such a special place to me. So now my tutor presence is I still do that podcast. And I also do the online tutor summit, which is a virtual summit bringing together leading tutor bloggers and podcasters and authors in a two-day event, tutor extravaganza all online. And we do that twice a year. And I have a shop and I'm putting together the world's first ever tutor con in October in Pennsylvania. So if anyone wants to travel to Pennsylvania and be around tutor speakers and other tutor files, 
that's an option. And maybe at the end of our chat today, you could give us some information about how to track down all those bits and pieces, because you're certainly a busy woman. Well, you know what it is? I just, I really love more so than, than researching this period. And I like researching and everything, but I really love building communities. It's what I did in my career. And it's what kind of inspires me in life is just bringing people together who all share a passion. And the thing that I find about tutor people, tutor enthusiasts, especially in America, because there's not the history all around them. Um, they tend to be like little islands of tutor lovers Mm -hmm. surrounded by people who kind of roll their eyes at them when they start talking about it and, you know, doing things that I can do to bring these people together. We have an online book club and we have like little tutor chats and, um, online and everything like that. And I just really want to kind of bring everybody together in our shared love of tutorness so there's loads of stuff that people can get connected to and as i say at the end of our chat let's make sure that we get the various different places where people can connect with all of that but in your chat there you gave us a clue as to where we are talking about today (laughs) and of course this lot is all about um having a chance for me to chat to other tutor bloggers and enthusiasts about one of their favorite tutor places and you mentioned it didn't you heather where are we talking about today well, we are going to Cambridge today and specifically King's College Chapel, but Cambridge in general. Okay, so over there in the east of England and mm. a beautiful, beautiful city, but you've honed in on King's College. So tell me, why is it one of your favourite places? Well, it is the the choir, of course, is amazing. It's a world famous choir. And the, the interesting thing for people who are interested in the Reformation is, of course, Cambridge was a, a hotbed of Protestants protestantism Mm -hmm. um during this period it was one of the early places where protestants would meet and there was a a tavern the the white horse tavern Mm -hmm. i believe it was called uh right along king's parade now and you know you walk through some of these places and right in in the market square there's holy trinity church which is from the 1300s but became a an important part of the reformation where the protestants would meet as well and so there was this all of this energy around the Reformation going on, while at the same time, Henry VIII was finishing up the chapel. And it's just such a, you just can feel this, this energy of the university town still has that. And just it's steeped in such history with that. And, Mm. uh, and I, I love going to going to the services at King's College Chapel. And I remember the first time I realized that it was just freely available, you know, I, and we can talk later about Mm. how, how you go, but I just kind of had this idea that you had to pay a lot of money or you had to be a very special person or, you know, (laughs) something like that. And I was, I was wandering around and in order to get there, the, there's like this back way you go through these little alleys and there's a, a chalk, a sign that people write that say, you know, to, to the river this way. And there's like a little arrow. And, um, it seems like no matter when you go, the people always seem to trace over those signs. So they're always fresh. And uh, so I was just following these signs that said to the river. And suddenly I wound up at at the door of King's College Chapel. And it was about whatever, three o'clock or I think five o'clock. Is there even song service? Mm. And um, they said, you know, do you want to come in for service? And I said, well, am I allowed? I'm, I'm American. I (laughs) (laughs) And so you go in and it's just the, the, ceiling, the vaulted ceiling, the, um, it, it's just this amazing, uh, I, I don't know. It's one of the few places that has these 
the vaulted what's the word for that fan vaulted yeah it's a fan vaulted ceiling isn't it yeah yeah, and uh, you know it was one of the earliest ones that that still exists today, and it's just such an a you walk through this this chapel, and it, it's not you know it's not that big, it's not it's not so imposing like going to services at Westminster Abbey or something. You know, mm. you walk through Westminster Abbey and you just know you're in hallowed ground, and <laughs> it's just very somber and it's very quiet and and it's huge and there's all this stuff to look at and King's College isn't it's not so intimidating when you go through you know there's mm. there's not so much to look at and there's not so much it's not so overpowering on your eyes I feel like sometimes when I go into Westminster Abbey mm. I'm just so confused yeah. and there's also <laughs> a lot of people there as well <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. It's not so crowded. Mm. And if you get there early enough, um, you can sit in the choir and you're just right now. And of course, if you get there early enough at Westminster Abbey, you can sit in the choir too, but you have to get there really, really early Mm. to do that. Or you go on a weeknight when there's Mm. not so many people there. But so you sit in the choir and you get to be right there listening to this music and they still, I mean, they sing all, all types or all all years mm-hmm. modern choral music as well and um but it, the atmosphere is just such you just feel the history all around you and one of the most bizarre experiences i ever had there was i went to um and all it was a a special rudder requiem for all souls day and it was at in the evening and they had candles and there were just these shadows of the, of the vaulted ceiling all around and these kind of really strange shadows. And, and, um, it was just at this really dramatic part of the requiem and a man passed out right in the middle of it <sighs> and they had to call for a doctor and, you know, have, but the whole time the choir still kept singing and it was, it was such a bizarre experience. And yet uh-huh. it just seemed like, like maybe he was just really overpowered mm-hmm. by all of it. Like, Mm. but i can imagine sitting there in the candlelight looking up at that fan vaulted ceiling which i think is 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 like the largest fan vaulted ceiling or some something like that it's it's really renowned and really beautiful and would be just an amazing thing to do but tell me what do we know about the history of the place you know who built it and yeah what do we know about that yeah well it was originally started by henry the sixth Ah, and you know he was he was known still as a as a saint, or that's kind of how we remember him now as this very pious person who maybe shouldn't have been king after compared to his father or the war. He wasn't the warrior king, and he was mm. very pious. And uh, and he started building it, but then uh, the wars, the roses kind of came and, and interrupted everything. And there, it, that that whole kind of area. There's also Queens College, which was which is kind of next to a little bit further down King's Parade, there's Queens. And that was of course started by Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret of Anjou. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like there was a lot of building going on at this time. And then Lady Margaret Beaufort also started a college right there. Was it St. John's Mm -hmm. or Clare? I I forget. I can't remember. You might well be right, but there will be people out there who know the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) There will be. And I apologize for getting it wrong if I did. But um, anyway, you know, they they were trying to complete these colleges and and it it seemed like it was a a period of a lot of building around around this time. And so Lady Margaret Beaufort actually said that she was going to continue a lot of these projects that Henry VI had started. And I think part of that was also the propaganda of the inheritance inheritance of the Lancastrian inheritance. They were trying to show that they were the true, um, 
the, the true inheritors of the Lancastrian line because their their claim was the Tudor claim was sort of tenuous at that mm. point. And so Lady Margaret Beaufort said she was going to continue all of these projects that Henry VI had started. And then Henry VII, you know, came to Cambridge and said he was he was going to continue work on it. So then in 1508, they really started to rebuild the college and the chapel. And then Henry VII died and Henry VIII said he was going to continue. And I think in 1512, the sort of shell was finished and that's when they started working on this vaulting. And that was complete by about 1515. And then Henry VIII continued working on a lot of this. Unfortunately for us, he was building this before he broke away from Rome and, uh, and it mm. was able to survive the Reformation. Uh, and the thing that's I think is really interesting, too, is he was working on this right as he was married to, to Anne Boleyn. And you can still see this intricate H and A of their initials uh, in the wood in the screen as you walk through under the organ, uh, you can kind of see this these carvings with the Tudor rose, and and it's a reminder that I guess you could always date Henry VIII's projects based on which wife <laughs> which wife's wife initial. <laughs> Yeah. So, so if people are going there, is it quite easy to see that carving of the H and the A? Where, where yeah, do people have to look? Yeah, it's all over. It's it's when you go under the organ. There's just this like the the rood screen, and and it's also in in the choir. You there's wherever the wood is. There's these very intricate carvings of H and A. So yeah. I mean, and of course, because um, of Anne's fate, so many of those initials were eradicated from various palaces, etc. It's really lovely to have somewhere where they have survived. Yeah, and I I don't really know exactly why they would have survived because he he did do so much to kind of erase her and all that I can really come up with it and you know maybe someone else out there is more of an expert and might know but it it was finished so she had died so quickly after it was finished. And then there was all the work on dissolving the monasteries. It seems like maybe it just wasn't a priority mm. for them to mm. erase her. Up yeah, maybe, there. maybe, yeah. who knows? Or maybe the person who was responsible for the chapel at the time was, was very much in the Berlin camp. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? Well. Yeah. So, um, I I've, I have visited King's College a long time ago, but I, I live over near Oxford, and actually you can nip along to many of the um, chapels that belong to mm-hmm. the colleges. And as you say, in an evening, very often there are services by candlelight or concerts by candlelight, and it is one of the most atmospheric things to do. So I can completely see why you are advocating that we put it on our Tudor roadmap <laughs> itinerary. Um, any Any other features that you want to draw to our attention? or indeed anything we should know about visiting um, the uh, King's College Chapel? Mm, well, in terms of just visiting, I, I, the services, the Evensong services are at five o'clock on Sundays. And, you know, it's very easy to, to get there. And if you get there about 15 minutes early or so, you can you know, sit in the choir and then you're then you're right there. Um, yeah, I, there's so much history at King's and it's kind of a, a miracle that it, it survived through the English Civil War. And I think Oliver Cromwell had quite a connection to Cambridge. He'd studied at Cambridge. So I think that a lot wow. of the buildings um, were able to be saved during the civil war at Cambridge, especially, but, um, you know, there, it's just, 
it's such an amazing place to go. And, and some of the carvings, there's um, the, the masonry that goes back to the 1440s that, you know, in that vaulted ceiling and in the, and in the, the side walls, there's these, um, these faces that you can see at the people that these masons had carved. It's interesting because I just read this book, Ian Mortimer's Outcast of Time, that was about a mason. And I think about uh, the, how these faces that they put in, who they represented to those people when the masons were carving and, you know, who that, maybe that was their father or mm-hmm. their mother and, you know, what sorts of people that was, those those images or those mm. statues were to those people. And, you know, it's just such a, it's just such a wonderful place. Everybody, if you go to Cam- if you go to Cambridge, you should try and hang around um, a little bit later. Maybe if you were going to leave in the afternoon, you should hang around and stick around for the evening and uh, and go to an even song service because well, and it's free. You know, it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, so. brilliant. <laughs> what more could you ask for? <laughs> I mean, seriously, what what else is there? You know, you yeah. get a get a nice snack somewhere and then go to have a nice tea somewhere and then go to even song and it's yeah yeah. very good well that's um again it's made me it's got my juices flowing i'm thinking (laughs) i need to go and do that now i shall add it to the list so thank you very much for sharing your love of king's college chapel and uh, Mm. but before we go i did promise that we would just perhaps um say where people could connect to some of the various projects you mentioned so do you want to give us some information on that well i think the the easiest place is just at my my podcast website, which is Englandcast, like the country Englandcast.com. And there's links all of you know, all over the place there uh, that people can can find out more. That's the easiest thing to to remember. Okay, well thank you for that. So thanks again for joining us on the Tudor Travel Show. It's been lovely to speak to you, Heather. Oh, thank you for letting me. <laughs> so that was Heather Tesco from English Renaissance Podcast. How wonderful to be talking about Cambridge, um, a place perhaps that's less often talked about on a Tudor itinerary, but certainly a place to note. And I'm sure Cambridge do this. I live near Oxford and certainly in Oxford being another university city, there are so many concerts that are held in some of the old medieval chapels associated with the college. I myself has been to um, a wonderful early Renaissance music um, concerts that are held in Exeter Chapel in Oxford. And these are held often by candlelight and sitting there in the dark, lit by candlelight, hearing this wonderful, evocative early Renaissance music really does make you feel like you're in heaven. So that's something to look out for if you are visiting either of those university towns. So now we are at the end of our show. Once again, it's been a pleasure to have you here. I hope you've enjoyed our adventures uh, through some fine Tudor properties and this has inspired you to get planning for your Tudor road trips ahead. And so until next time, let's enjoy a little bit of music as we say goodbye and I look forward to seeing you in the next programme. Thank you.